pre three bourbons, I'm looking at the speed of a horse and seeing how it's fared in the, in, on that track and then the jockey, uh, and then the bloodline. But, uh, after that, it's kind of like, all right, who's got the highest odds. <laughs> <laughs> This is episode 278 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And before we start today's podcast, let's just jump into bourbon release news. The Last Drop Distillers is introducing a very old bottling called 1980 Buffalo Trace. This was distilled, well, of course, 1980 at what was then the George T. Stagg Distillery, which is now known as Buffalo Trace Distillery. The barrels rested until a complete inventory was taken in 1998. And when the barrels were 18 years old, they were then vatted at 20 years old into stainless steel. After another 20 years in stainless tanks, Sazerac and The Last Drop believed that 40 years of total maturation has produced one of the finest bourbons ever made. The 1980 Buffalo Trace Bourbon Whiskey is release number 13 from The Last Drop and its second only ever bourbon release. Only 240 bottles of the ultra-rare bourbon will be available worldwide for 90 proof and a suggested retail price of $4,600. WM Tar Distillery has announced the availability of Old WM Tar Manchester Reserve. It's a 12-year-old Kentucky bourbon with a limited release of 1,500 bottles. They'll come in small batch as well as single barrel options and will have a suggested retail price of $300. Widow Jane Distillery has a new release called You'll Never Walk Alone. It's a limited bottling of its signature 10-year-old bourbon specifically created to raise funds to benefit the United States Bartenders Guild, its National Charity Foundation, and CORE, Children of Restaurant Employees. You'll Never Walk Alone is an overproof distiller's choice bottling of Widow Jane 10-year bourbon, will be bottled at 100 proof versus the standard 91 proof. 3,300 bottles will be available in California, D.C., Florida, Illinois, New York, and Texas. For today's podcast, the data, it never lies. That's something that you're going to hear. Now, if you're in marketing, you want to make sure your marketing dollar stretches further. There aren't many people throwing money at the New Yorker for full-page ads anymore. Instead, the focus is on targeting your demographic through Facebook campaigns and using social media or even podcasts to drive your business. We're joined by Mike Province of 3x3 Analytics to see how brands as well as liquor stores are using their platform to reach new customers. Our Patreon community is the heart and soul of this podcast. Without the sustaining pledges of our supporters, this show would have suffered a tragic end years ago. But it has to be about you too. And that's why Bourbon Pursuit offers the largest private barrel club around that you can join. We have selected 36 barrels so far in 2020 with more to still go. Get all the information at bourbonpursuit.com and click on Barrel Club in the menu to learn more. With that, enjoy today's episode. And here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Around 2008, when I was a green whiskey writer, I was inside a Chicago bar, and this bartender had this gashing wound on his left hand. I was like, what happened? He's like, I was trying to open some uh, Noah's Mill, or I don't know, it it was a Willow brand of some type. And I was like, how in the hell did you cut your hand so deeply? And he's like, it's the wax. It's the wax. 
And I walked away from that and was like, who in the hell cuts their hand on wax? Now, I didn't think of it at the time. He probably had a pocket knife out and he just jagged his hand. But some years later, I would be trying to open up a bottle of Maker's Mark myself and the little twisty tie that's there, it, it ripped off and I had to pull out a pocket knife. Guess who cut their hand? This guy. Yeah, that was the moment I realized how much I hate wax on bottles. I really wish brands would get away from wax. Now, I understand. Wax brings a certain level of je ne sais quoi, and it gives people a feeling of quality. But the fact is, it's really nothing more than wax. And by the way, if it's out in your trunk overnight, and it's really hot outside, or it's really cold, that wax will expand, and the cork or screw cap will most likely undo itself. I've never seen wax really hold up against harsh conditions. And so, as brands continue to grow, as things continue to happen in American whiskey, let us all say this. Wax has no place for the future of American whiskey. That is, unless you're Maker's Mark, and if you use their kind of wax, they'll sue you. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you have an idea for Above the Char, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, uh, or fredminnick.com. Just look for my name, Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Gift 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof, and the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. 
Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Fred and Kenny here today talking about something that is near and dear to really what we see in the way that we see retailers start getting into market, the way we see that spirits producers want to start getting their hands to the customers in the market, and it all revolves around data. And I know that you know, Fred and I, we've talked about it before, like the data doesn't lie when you want to do anything, whether it's advertising, whether it's uh, trying to see if a brand works, you know, what do the sales numbers look like? That's that's what it all boils down to. Yeah, my fascination with data really just goes back to being a journalist, you know, early in a career. It's like, you know, you would have a lead and then you would have a number and then you would have a quote. I mean, that was kind of like a formula, um, you know, for reporting you know, when I was coming up the ranks and I applied that into business and you would get like these as, um, as you know, the web world was coming more online, you had big search and the big search became big data. And there was just all these types of analytics that you could, you know, grab and study and use from a reporting perspective. And then we have something like Drizzly, which is making their data, you know, public. And so we're going from a world that's been ran by mom and pop cash registers to nope, you know, and nobody really knowing anything, all these mysteries of like how things are sold and what's selling and what markets and what demographics are drinking. It's now right there in the open for everybody to see. And it's just awesome. It's a great day to be a, a geek of data. That is for sure. Well, it's, it's, it can be good and bad. You know, it's, we, we see exactly, you know, when you go to Amazon and you buy something, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we suggest this for you too. Like, ah, oh, damn, they know me very, very well. They got that. And then it seems like whenever, you know, me and you, we could be sitting in a conversation in our, in a basement or something like that, just talking about, I don't know, uh, just Iceland. And then all of a sudden there's like advertisements that says like, you should book your vacation to Iceland this week. And we're like, how do they know all this stuff? So yeah, data's good and bad all at the same time. Well, I, I guess I look at, I don't necessarily think of that as data as much as like eavesdropping. <laughs> Snooping. Uh, like, you uh, yeah, of like, you know, and like, and what are you going to do? Are you going to tell Apple, no, you're not going to agree to their terms and conditions? Then you're, then you basically bought a thousand dollar paperweight, you know? So, I mean, I guess you're, you're speaking to the evolution of data, whereas I look at it as like a, it's, it's a reporting thing for me and, um, uh, and also, I mean, I was always a sports fan. And as a sports fan, the first thing I would do is like grab the newspaper and take a look at who has had the highest batting average, uh, how many touchdowns Barry Sanders had, you know, things like that. So it's uh, that's it's just, you know, data's always been out there just instead of being in like an analog form. Uh, now it's at the click of real. Really, it's just out there in the cloud and everywhere else. And we can even bring it back to Kentucky because you don't just go to the horse track. I don't know about me and you. We don't go and just like bet on the uh, the pretty colors or the name. You know, I look at right. the data. I, I look at, mm -hmm. you know, the races ran and, uh, you know, what what stable is it coming from? Who's the owner? How many wins has he had? So it's, well, it depends on how many bourbons I've had in me. Uh, <laughs> with, you know, pre pre three bourbons, I'm looking at the speed of a horse and seeing how it's fared in the in, on that track. And then the jockey. Uh, and then the bloodline. But uh, after that, it's kind of like, all right, who's got the highest odds? <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. I need to I need to catch up here. One's yeah, always going to hit at some point. 
And I'll, I'll share a funny little thing. And my dad, my dad, he said, this is the secret to always winning at the track. Uh, he said, every single race, just bet $20 on the favorite. You're guaranteed to come out ahead. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. It, it, it could be something there to it. But let's go ahead. We'll, we'll switch gears for a little bit. Let's introduce our guest. So today on the show, we have Mike Province. He is the CEO of 3 by 3 which is a location-based digital marketing platform for beer, wine, and spirits retailers. So Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kenny. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's one thing we've been doing new this season, and we start the show off with a, a random icebreaker, just something to kind of let people know more about you, and we'll kind of talk about it a little bit. So our random icebreaker today is, what sport would you compete in if you were in the Olympics? That one is easy. I wrestled for 12 years in Wisconsin, and uh, I would compete in wrestling. I'd probably get my ass kicked, but... I would compete in wrestling. You uh, so I I wrestled as well back in high school and middle school. You uh, Greco Roman freestyle. What's your what's your style? Uh, I freestyle mostly. I did some Greco Roman uh, summer camps, that kind of thing. But uh, I I went to actually went to camp with the Peterson brothers in Michigan, who were two Olympians. So I had some you know second and third level uh, exposure to the Olympic wrestling community. But I still follow it today, and I'm you know excited for it to kick off next year. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of actually I, I follow it a lot. Uh, you know, NCAA tournaments when they're on, uh, you know, on ESPN and or uh, the you know regional sports networks and stuff like that. So we could we can talk about wrestling another day. What about you, Fred? Yeah. What what sport? Well, would you I compete think in? I actually would like to keep the wrestling conversation going because I actually uh, wrestled too. I didn't know you wrestled, Kenny. Oh, uh, and I and I'm from Oklahoma, where like wrestling is like in everybody's blood. And and uh, when I was growing up, I was wrestling against like you know future Olympic athletes as well. Um, and one of them was you know and it went and ended up becoming like a, a prominent MMA fighter named John, Johnny Hendricks. Johnny Hendricks's dad was my wrestling coach, and he was a mean son of a bitch, man. Like he would just like, oh, you think you're tired? Run 30 more laps and add six layers of clothes on yourself, Minnick, and then go in the bathroom and sweat it out. And then I'd pass out later. Like, ah, he was rough. But I would not choose wrestling. Um, I actually, I thought I, when I was running, when I was a runner and I was doing uh, marathons, I thought I would have a shot at running the marathon in the Olympics. Um, but um, yeah, that didn't happen. So, but I would, I, I, when I was in my prime, that of all the things that I've done athletically, I would say running was my absolute favorite thing to do. So I would choose running. I'm going to disagree with you there because, so I actually ran cross country in high school to start losing weight for wrestling. That's, that's sort of like how I, I started doing my thing. So, um, it's yeah. amazing. Now, then you got a tapeworm along the way because your ass never gains any weight. And I look at a piece <laughs> of pizza from 30 yards away and it goes straight to my hips. Oh, man. I, I, I just remember the days of like going to you know lunch and actually not going to lunch and only having like an apple and a granola bar so I could, you know, make sure I get, you know, make weight for for the meat on Saturday and everything mm -hmm. like that. And, you know. Only wrestlers that, know that that you don't go out on Friday nights, so you have to just go and kick ass on Saturday. Exactly, nine hundred calories a day. Mm -hmm. 
At Oklahoma State, though, the wrestlers still went to the bars. I just don't think they ate anything. And they usually got in fights with everybody. So the 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 wrestlers would be like on one side of the one side of the bar and the baseball players and football players would kind of like tiptoe around them because nobody wanted to mess with the wrestlers. They were such badasses. And you can always tell because they got the cauliflower ears. Yeah. You, know, you can always tell. <laughs> and they're always looking for a fight. They're like, did you look at me? Did you did you just look at me? <laughs> so let's go ahead and we'll, we'll kind of shift directions a little bit and back onto the the nature of what we're here today. So, Mike, I kind of want you to dive in a little bit into you know your platform and where you're really marketing or what you're gearing this to, and, and kind of give people maybe a little bit better overview than than what I did in the intro. You bet. Uh, so, as you mentioned, we're location based marketing platform, and to to dig into that a bit more. Um, what we've built is a platform for the independent beer, wine, and spirits retailer that can connect that retailer and brands that go through that retailer with the right consumers. And by right consumers, I mean the ones who have the highest likelihood to purchase that product and, and buy within that category. And, you know, as, as you mentioned at the in the introduction, you know, there's not a lot of information out there about the independent stores. There, there's information about big box and grocery and there's lots of data that's already been compiled um, but there's a lot of extrapolation that goes on in the industry and assuming that the person who shops at that independent liquor store shops the way they do when they're at a total wine or when they're at a walmart or grocery or buying an online and and the, the the data show that that isn't the fact and that the buying patterns are very different even for the same person that they go to liquor stores for different reasons. And, you know, we can drill into that. But the what we did was took that um, that gap in the market and said, if no one's looking at this corner of the market, and by the way, that corner of the market is $120 billion in sales uh, every year, right? So it's a um, it's still a valuable part of the market, but a lot of it is still guesswork the way it's been done decade over decade. And so what we did is, built a network of retailers across 37 states that give us a view of the independent market through data we collect at the receipt level. So we're collecting per consumer purchase data uh, from the stores, the entirety of what that store is selling. So we're looking at an entire picture day by day, week by week of what's popular, what's not, what's trending up, what's trending down in these stores. We couple that with um, first and third party consumer data that gives us a picture of both what's being purchased and more about who's purchasing it. And by that, I mean demographic, psychographic, lifestyle data. And one of the things that research has shown in the alcohol space, and, and you probably have seen this over, over and over, is that lifestyle and, and psychographic data are much more predictive of buying behaviors than demographics are, right? Saying this product is great for millennials is not necessarily uh, is not necessarily going to be a successful strategy. But being able to say, hey, this new seltzer is ideally targeted for beer drinkers who like the beach and who like special promotions, that is a much tighter choke to put on aiming for the right customer in the market. And it's much more effective at converting them to buy or at least try. I guess my first kind of question that, that goes into this when you're talking about these independent chain stores or independent retail stores, 
well, I think one of the issues that they've always had is trying to keep up with the digital trend. So how are they even, I mean, are they using things and you're pulling things from like, are they putting their online or they're putting their inventory online? Are they using something like Drizzly or, you know, Barcard or whatever these things are? Like, how do you, how do you convince them to say, you've got to adopt sort of this digital trend? That's a great question. And, and the, the simple answer is the, it runs the spectrum of retailers who don't use digital at all still today in the middle of, you know, in the middle of a surge in the use of technology uh, to ones who are very invested in it and who are competitive with the grocery and the other CPGs and the other retailers out there who are, have been further along in technology over, over the decades. And so when we talk to the retailers, one of the things we focus on is the fact that technology doesn't solve everything, meaning you might have a uh, e-commerce app, you might have an online uh, website for buying your product. It might be yours, you might be using Drizzly. Best practices from some of the best liquor retailers, they're using multiple channels, right? They're on Drizzly, they're on Minibar, they're on other platforms, and they are also running their own app and they're also running their own website. All of those things focus on the bottom of the funnel. They focus on the transaction. They focus on customers that can, that store already possesses, that they already are customers of the store because they're following them already on Instagram. They're already uh, buying and they're, they're repeat purchasers. And that's great because you want to nurture those relationships and, and maintain those. But what the independents don't typically get when it comes to technology is how do you apply that to the upper part of the funnel where you pull customers from your competition, you pull customers from your local market, but people who don't know about you or haven't thought about buying from you. And that's where we have focused our attention because that really wasn't getting any attention. Retailers don't think about how technology could do that. A lot of them you know, still today are running radio and running newspaper circulars and doing traditional things that have been done over and over and things that aren't measurable and things that they can't point directly to conversion from uh, where they can, if they can adopt technology. But it, it is a, you it mean is that, a you mean that mailer that I get every other day and just throw straight in the trash is not converting other people. <laughs> I'm <Certainly> shocked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you'd be surprised at the thousands of dollars that these retailers spend on, on that type of marketing. I mean, the newspaper circular, I mean, I'm going to have to push back a little bit on that because I do think that that one is really uh, beneficial to something like someone like Total Wine because they can put in a big block uh, maker's mark for $22. And so like that's and that's still getting a lot of uh, eyeballs. And I see people in the in the parking lots with those circulars. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think some of those things might still be very effective, especially for the, those who are playing the price game. I, I think it's very effective for something, someone like a total that is playing the price game, but they're also um, serving a more mass audience where the, re the independent retailer, if they want to be able to compete with total at that level and that type of spend, they're going to be putting a lot of money against getting a smaller audience segment. So the conversion rates, you know, they'll get people in. There's no doubt people still read the paper, still pe people still bring their circulars to the store and ask about the product. 
but that's on a downward trend where being able to have that show up, that same circular showing up in your mobile phone, either getting you to the store with it in hand or causing you to buy it directly from the ad is becoming more and more potent as a, as a way for retailers to reach out. And, you know, it's not an either or, it's not a binary switch we're going to flip. There's still money going into tr- traditional uh, marketing, even in-store promotions, which you know, most retailers say, yeah, I, I have the in-store promotions, but they also say, I don't, if I, if I had to pay for it, I wouldn't do it because it doesn't do anything, right? You get all sorts of different approaches that are being tried, but what is now on the rise really is digital. And I think it's, it's, you're seeing it accelerate now. And there's a couple trends that are driving that, you know, one trend is, is just proliferating at a mobile level and retailers and their consumers, you know, are bringing phones in the store and price shopping from the phone. Um, but the other thing you're seeing on the retailer side is there it's a generational change. So moms and pops that had these stores have groomed their kids and someone's taken over. And those kids are coming in much more com- conversant and comfortable with technology and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm making the switch over. We want a bigger presence online. Mm. It still has a long way to go, right? Their, their stores do great work with Instagram. And then when you look at the followers on them, there's 400 followers or 700 followers. That's not, you know, that's not going to blow up the business. That's a week's worth of traffic. Yeah, for sure. I, I think you hit a, a few good points there. I think I want to dive down just a little bit. So one thing that you had mentioned was that, you know, Total Wine, you know, they'll use something and they'll they'll have a huge budget, like massive budget. They'll they'll do circulars. They got apps. They've got um, other just, you know, email, digital news, literally everything. They cover the whole spectrum. And you had mentioned that, you know, independent retailer, they need to focus on precise spending. So give us an idea of like, what does something that, you know, how can you make your dollar stretch further by using something that you all have? That great, great question. Uh, the, what we know about targeting these local customers is when you can apply three or four filters around a store, the distance you want to reach the customer, the kind of customer you're trying to reach as this a, is this a bourbon customer or am I going after a wine customer? Um, if you're if you can put some sort of lifestyle parameter on that, the tighter you can bring that search, the less money you can spend to get the best results in converting customers in. So we we with our platform, we're running a platform where they'll spend two or three dollars a day per ad to get high levels of conversion walking in the store or going online and buying product and and seeing lift in the size of the basket they're spending because you're getting people who are coming in, in getting caught early in the journey, looking at the store, coming into the store and, and really discovering new products that they can purchase. And, and that's what it boils down to is if you're doing mass marketing, you're going to see low conversion results and spend lots of money that gets basically sent to people who are never going to touch it, who are going to throw the mailers away. Right? a lot of these retailers who have email lists just blast the email list and don't do any filtering and they end up getting 5, 10, 15% unsubscribes every month when they do that. Well, the reason is if you keep hitting Fred with a white wine ad, he's not going to pay attention to your email. He's eventually going to hit unsubscribe and find a place that mails in bourbon ads. Right? So, is it white Zinfandel though? I mean, because <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I didn't want to get specific. I don't know you that well. So. <laughs> uh, well, but I was, I was teasing. Yeah, the uh, the but the point is, the more you can tighten that target, you can spend less money, but spend it more effectively. And that's what we work with the retailers on educating them. It's not about big budgets. It's about well-placed budgets by understanding what's selling in your store, right? And every liquor store has beer or either wine and spirits or beer, wine and spirits, depending on the state. Um, but they are not always selling in the same mix, in the same basket composition. And that's where you have to start. What does that store do well? What does it sell best? What does it want to move? Where are its profit opportunities? And then target on that rather than, oh, come in the store, here are our deals this week. And that's not targeting, that's just fishing. So let's say I'm a store and I'm just getting started on my, my digital journey here. And I've got to figure out how to build, you know, a, a customer list, if you say, you know, like how do you how do you tailor, you know, the products that you want to advertise to these people. I know, I know when I go to Kroger, I've got my Kroger card, they get you because they're like, oh, you get all the discounts with it. But really they're just tracking and using all the data to figure out exactly what your purchasing and your, uh, what your purchasing habits are. And they will, you know, offer you coupons to be able to go and buy those things over and over again. So kind of talk about what are some of those methods that stores use today to help profile their customers or help build a database, if you will. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Kind of talk about what are some of those methods that stores use today to help profile their customers or help build a database, if you will. Sure. The The simplest way is understanding what your neighborhood looks like. And every retailer would tell you they understand their neighborhood, right? They know the the regulars uh, that come in the store, but unless they actually start to systematically collect data or look at um, census data about that census block, that local neighborhood, you know, they're picking up on kind of a selection bias because they're only focusing on the the, the qualities of the customers they already see rather than looking at that, the whole base around them. And in most of the data, and this varies based off urban versus suburban, but you can figure that, you know, a consumer that's going to shop at a local liquor store, an independent retailer, they're not coming from more than 
five, seven miles away if it's the suburbs. They're not coming from probably less than a mile away or even 10 blocks away if it's Manhattan, right? So there's there's certain very small radiuses that these that the retailers need to focus on understanding and the differences can be striking even within that you can have within around one store one side of it can be very uh diverse and the other side of it can be white and affluent and how do you decide to cater to which of those markets or do you try to be everything to everyone and those are the kind of choices they need to make by looking at the market first then they can get into collecting data about those consumers, whether that's through email lists or loyalty programs, or or more, you know, more recently, as more of them are signing up to this e-commerce platforms to give them a, at least a look at a small fraction of their consumers, right? Because even at the le- with most stores, and what we're seeing this with bigger independent retailers, so retailers that might have ten or fifteen stores, twenty stores in a state, um, they have an e-commerce platform, but maybe 5% of their customer base are active users that maybe 10% are. So they're not getting a complete picture, but they're getting a start. They're getting a sampling of it. And that's, you just start and experiment and test. There's no one way to get to it. I think test and learn is a big factor in how you apply uh, technology and data to the problem of selling. Uh, so I guess the I'd probably answer my own question when I was going through it is you're not actually like trying to build a cons- customer database. I mean, you're using geographic locations on on how this is done, and I mean, and I'm gonna probably we, go into some of your some of your IP here. I mean, are you getting, uh, you know, are you scouring like government websites to be able to see like what people look like in this area? Are you using like Facebook geographic determination and all that sort of we, stuff? We use it. We use, so we use a number of things. And ultimately our goal is to build audiences for these stores and build audiences that are not general purpose, but have specific roles around the kinds of campaigns we're running. So what do I mean by that? Yes, we're, we have a, a, we've built a census database up from the ground up. Uh, a lot of the census data that if you buy it from a third party um, is is not is not clean. It has a lot of work you have to do to make it do what you need it to do. We built from the ground up so we could control uh, how we were going to use it and what that structure looked like. But that that's just layer one, right? And then we began to combine the purchase data. So that's you know the unique data that we partner with retailers to collect. We aggregate that up. We look at patterns that cross over markets, that cross over stores and neighborhoods, and begin to build models uh, of purchase proclivity, purchase propensity, and behaviors around that. Those aren't specific individuals. That's all transactions. But then working um, working with the store's data on consumers and working with a third party database of consumer lifestyle data that we can target down to the neighborhood and look at households that exist around those stores, we're able to build more specific models where we can actually find a, uh, for Father's Day, we had a big push on ads for stores that wanted to run uh, whiskey ads targeting fathers. So we built audiences and, and attributes to find the custom audiences that were most likely to buy whiskey around the Father's Day holiday. And so we begin to build, as I said before, having three or four attributes around a particular type of audience you want to reach lets you be very precise and target that audience. And so we create from data campaigns that are occasion-based, that are trend-based, uh, 
that are audience-based and, and that are goal-based, for lack of a better term. If a retailer has a specific goal that they're trying to do around a new category or a new product launch, or a lot of times where we work with brands to launch into a market, we're targeting through that retailer network uh, to reach people that are most likely to buy that brand. So it's about matching the right custom audience. And, and ultimately, when you connect it to Facebook, or you connect it to programmatic search or paid search, things like that, you have to translate our segmentation from our data to the segments that exist inside the 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 service provider, the the media that you're serving the ads through. So we do connect into Facebook uh, audiences, and but ultimately we're getting to those audiences by looking at it from an external point of view because the audiences taken straight from Facebook don't give you the level of precision that a liquor store needs to be um, very effective in in using its spend. You know, one of the things that um, I always find interesting is that the liquor game, you know, is kind of a job. Like you, um, you know, liquor stores in terms of like what they're selling and what, you know, people want is often dictated by um, a massive amount of media uh, from the respective brands um, and like sponsorship programs in store. You know, do you have... You know, do you have data that suggests that, uh, you know, the more a supplier spins in a market, you know, the the more benefit to the retailer or anything like that? So we we haven't looked specifically at that question, but we've looked around the question a lot. And remember, I, I said at one point was talking about the fact that even the same customer, when they shop at a grocery store for alcohol, or when they shop at Target or Walmart, when they go shop at a liquor store, they're doing it for different reasons. Well, one of the fundamental different reasons and what's still magical about the the liquor segment in retail is that it's a place for discovery, right? People walk the aisles, they talk to the owner, they get very close to uh, you know the product and they can actually find new things that they would not have found. It's not even available on the shelves because Grocery and big box carry fewer SKUs, but carried in higher volume. So for somebody who has a discerning palate for alcohol, they might stock up for parties by going to grocery because they need to buy in volume and want a good price. But they're not going there to get high-end scotch. or They're not going there to get high-end bourbon. They're going there because they can get a good deal. Then they're going to go down the street and they're going to find that liquor store retailer that remembers them and they're going to talk about what they bought last time and they're going to get into mm -hmm. the discovery phase. And so what I would say is that what we've seen on the independent segment and why it's different is, yes, the Diageo and the, the Bacardi's and Moets, they're all spending a lot of money to move a lot of product through those channels. But small brands also have an opportunity to be successful in a liquor store in ways that they don't have through other channels. And that's where I think there is some parity. And that's where we work with both the brands, the big brands and the small ones, because the small ones see a direct path to the consumer through our platform that then brings the consumer to the store to purchase. And so it's a, a symbiotic connection that helps support and do it cost effectively, support getting the right consumer to that brand. Um, because you know the, the smaller brands tend to not be 
um, mass media product they t- or mass market product, they tend to be niche products. And so you want the niche customers that match up. Um, so small brands can be very cost effective in their spend and still be successful. Big brands, I think, probably still don't, A, they don't put a lot of marketing dollar against this channel, right? The independent channel for them, the liquor store, is half of all their bottle sales. And they put less than 5% of their marketing budget against the independent channel. It's almost a, a you know, and I, I we work with all three tiers. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but th- all of their attention goes to placement in um, end caps in grocery or end caps at Walmart or, you know, well-placed uh, facings on the shelf. The local liquor stores get kind of whatever's left over, whatever the distributor is going to do. Yeah, they'll throw some tastings in. Yes, they'll do some in-store POS. But at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot of effort to try to drive traffic to the liquor store on behalf of the retailer by the brand. We aim to change that because we aim to give them a platform, both the brands and the retailers, a platform that's cost-effective in pinpointing the right buyers for their product. I think you brought up something cool and maybe maybe something that you have already thought of or you know, kind of alluded to is like, say I'm a brand. And I've got a I've got a twenty five thousand dollar marketing ad spend. We'll just we'll just something that's kind of on the small end for most of them. You know, instead of me saying you know I'll try to try to create my own Facebook audiences and you know try to you know promote on Twitter and or sorry Instagram and Facebook doing that and paying you know for Google keywords. What if I paid you all to say okay I want you to find the retailers because usually when they do these they say oh you can go find us at your local retailer or order online whatever it is but if you're able to partner with the retailer and it says like okay like i'm going to put an ad for my product and i'm going to put your store and say okay go get this at jack's fine wines that's you know two blocks away from your house like is that something that you all are, are doing as well or is that something that potentially could happen we, it is something that we're we're doing in ways that we can legally do that. And what I mean by that is we have we have to market brands into markets. We can't market, you know, that they should just go buy it here because they'll get a special deal. But we are able to do two things. One, we can point customers to shop in the market for the product, point them to stores when we're we're targeting around the store. Um, but more importantly, because we maintain a network of these stores where we collect data, we can also measure directly the impact from the ad in looking at post-campaign traffic and purchase uh, linked to that product or that brand. So we use the network both as a way of helping those stores sell more of the products the brands that partner with us want to sell, um, but also as a way to build the metrics that show brands how well digital works for them and how it can be done cost effectively because you're right it's in in total dollar spend the 25,000 might be a small amount of money but that a lot of that can be wasted if it's thrown into digital channels without any thought given to precisely placing those ads at the right households in the right parts of the market and so we'll help them look at how to best distribute the the reach of the ad into the parts of the market that it's going to do the best work. And that's probably the best way to think about it because you can't you know, legally direct people to a particular store, uh, especially around offers and tight house rules are very you know, clear on how we keep the brand, the distributor and the retailer separate. But you can use 
the the base metrics of where the likely customers are to determine how you're going to place advertising about a product, right? And so a lot of times ads get placed in markets and you guys have probably run into this from your own, the ads you see is this ad has no impact on me whatsoever, but I got it anyway because I'm in Louisville, right? And so I'm getting hit with this, these ads for whatever reason. And that that's just inefficient use of capital and in, in spending on, on, on digital marketing. I've, I've seen those ads before pop up where it says it's literally a picture of like Pappy Van Winkle for some store in Arizona. I'm like, I right. no idea why it's showing up. <laughs> but, you know, I've I've got a question for you there, because now that we've seen, you know, your, your target is really trying to get foot traffic in the door and getting these people to, you know, to, you know, drive more traffic to these stores and really targeting the demographic. How is shipping starting to change or impact that part of your business? So we we um we actually are trying to drive conversion either walking in the store or going to the online site and shopping, and so we track both. Um, so it, it's frankly easier to track when we can work with the retailer or the brand, depending on where the orders are happening, to track the the transaction all the way through to the to the checkout, right? If we're online, than it is to necessarily do that with walk-in traffic, um, but one of the things that it affects our business is really optimizing the channels. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but one of the things we've seen recently in the past few months is that is that if your goal for, as a retailer is to sell through your online channel, Facebook does a much better job converting to online purchase, but programmatic search pays off much better if your goal is to get people to walk in your store. So you know, what, if you're looking for curbside or you're looking for delivery as a local retailer, you are going to want to put more dollars against programmatic search. Now for the retailers that run on our platform, we make those decisions for them based off the nature of the campaign, the store, et cetera, et cetera. We're not asking them to become digital experts as, as part of signing up, but those are the factors that affect it. And so we'll look at, um, you know, what are the, what are the optimization trends in this period of time? What's working well, what's not working well and make adjustments to that. And it varies whether you're a retailer trying to drive to shopping online or in store, or you're a brand trying to get people to, to do that. Now, you know, direct to consumer for the wine side is, is a different ball game altogether. And, you know, every channel has its own pattern. So we're not dealing with the DTC side of things for wine, but as the Supreme Court ruling from last year starts to uh, trickle through all the states and the rules about shipping start to expand to include spirits, and that that will be a factor that we'll have to continue to, to evolve and iterate and innovate around. And so one of the things that is pretty common today, as well as you know Instagram, you see it all the time, is influencer marketing. Is influencer marketing versus something you know with you, target marketing, is one better than the other? Does one provide better results? So on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I think the the answer is really, it depends, right? It depends on, am I launching a new brand? Is this a brand that is really geared toward a market that uh, responds well to influencers? Is this a a goal that the, the is the measurable outcome here, influencer? Is it actual bottle sales? And what I would say is, if you're running targeted marketing programs through us, you're doing that because you directly want to influence bottle sales. If you have you know, 
pick your favorite rapper trying to promote a product, your goal isn't to get someone to go from that Instagram post to a liquor store to buy the product. You're seeding it for future a- action. And they, the two things work together well. Um, we don't deal on, with the influencer side of things. I think the, the rules there are changing and becoming much more uh, transparent about when something's an influencer ad versus somebody just posting on Instagram. So there's some tightening up that's going on on that side of the the, the marketing sp- uh, sphere. Um, but for us, the, the, the ultimate goal with our clients has to do with, I want to sell more product. And I don't think the influencers have that direct kind of effect on it. Uh, what I will say does, and it, this is a, you know, a, a evolution of influencer sort of, but the move to do more tastings online to make more experts available tied to brands and doing that on a mass market or at least a larger audience is paying off for retailers and it's paying off for small brands that want to get their their uh, product out there in an efficient way. So what about like the, uh, what are the things too that varies in, uh, you know, as a consumer, um, the way a store looks, I mean, you can market to me all you want, but if I walk in and, mm-hmm. you, you know, there's a stale sandwich in the corner and you got your displays all wonky, you know, uh, I still, I believe that liquor retail is so much about appearance, you know, where do you stand I, on that? I would absolutely agree with you. I, I uh, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, your product isn't the stuff on the shelf as a retailer. It's the experience that consumer has when they're coming in to discover. Um, and, and so it comes down to, you know, the little things like I can see across the store. I can see where I want to go. It's, you know, even, even, and I say this in, like, even the, in the control states, the ABC states, like North Carolina or like Pennsylvania, Virginia, um, they, they've seen the light there too. And so you used to go in those stores and they didn't really care. The shelves were stocked up six, seven feet high. You couldn't see anything. You just had to follow the signage. Today you go in, they've renovated. Everything's been lowered. Some of that for security concerns and being able to, to detect theft, but a lot of it about engaging the consumer in that, that experience. And, you know, there's a, we have a, one of our retailers down in Arkansas, they've did a huge renovation of the store, beautiful store. They dropped big overstuffed chairs in the middle around a fireplace. And you, know, you can go in and actually be there for a long period of time and try the tastings and sit down and talk to other other consumers who talk to people, you know, the tasters about the product and that kind of experience is what makes, that's why liquor stores will need to continue to exist. There's no other place for you to learn about something uh, other than going to a bar and trying something there, which is how the new brands, you know, typically get started. But at the, at some point you need that kind of discovery mode to become more of an experience for you one-to-one. Mm-hmm. So as we kind of start wrapping this up, you know, kind of tell us, give us one success story, kind of, kind of tell your, your lighthouse customer here and kind of how you, uh, progress their, their digital transformation, if you will. I, so I'll give you a, a, an example of, it was a very, it was around the Christmas holiday, but we were able to run a very limited budget that produced 10 to 12 times return on ad spend. So that, that meant you were getting conversion rates that were much, much higher than they'd seen in the prior year. 
even much higher than they'd seen in the weeks leading up to the Christmas holiday. Uh, so it, it's it's a very it, where we have success, it happens in very small time frames, and so it's important to be precise. We've had you know we've seen return on ad spend in the teens and twenties in some cases uh, with small brands and with retailers. You know, and if you think about that in context, having anything over four x return on ad spend is really good. Having things in the teens is just blowing the roof off for these these small sellers. Yeah, it definitely is. You know, we we run our own ads on Facebook and trying to find the conversion of new subscribers and stuff like that. It's tough. It is tough. So trying to dial it in uh, is never easy. So it looks like you all have a, a winning kind of platform of of how you can try to get, you know, those retailers there, uh, you know, get them again, more more up into the digital age, if you will. That That's our goal. Yeah. So Mike, uh, if people want to know more about 3 by 3 how can they find out about you? Uh, easiest way is 3x3.us, which is 3x3.us. And I'm Mike at 3x3.us, so easy to reach out and, and ask questions. And uh, that that's that's us. And we're, we're trying to do, do well by brands and retailers and consumers that are independent. Well, good deal. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for, for joining the show today. Again, good to kind of get an idea about data, the analytics, and really how that goes into kind of targeting uh, people being able to utilize Facebook data, Instagram data, Google data, everything like that, and really kind of localize it for some of these people, they can get a lot of a lot of good information and you know convert it into real sales. So something that uh, anybody that's out there in the retail market probably need to start looking into. But make sure you follow them, uh, follow us, Bourbon Pursuit, on all the socials. And if you like what you hear, support us, patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. And if you can, please leave a review. With that, cheers, y'all, and we'll see you next week.